0: Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Rebecca Adamson, who is President of First Peoples Worldwide. Today we will discuss the value of indigenous economics. Rebecca, a Cherokee economist, is also founder of First Peoples Worldwide. A leader, activist, and groundbreaking indigenous woman, Rebecca holds a distinct perspective, of how indigenous peoples' value and economic systems can transform business models of today. Since 1970, she has worked directly with grassroots tribal communities and nationally as an advocate of local tribal issues. She established the U.S. Development Institute, First Nations Development Institute in 1980, and in 1997 she created the United States-based Global Indigenous Peoples Non-Government Organization First peoples worldwide. Rebecca's work established the first microenterprise loan fund in the United States, the first tribal investment model, and a national movement for reservation land reform. As one of few Native Americans on a mutual fund board, the Calvert Social Investment Funds, Rebecca led the creation of the Calvert Foundation's Community Notes, the only private sector investment vehicle for community development financial institutions, or CDFIs. Last year, some of her efforts led the International Finance Corporation, the World Bank, and the UN Principles of Responsible Investors to adopt standards for implementing policies regarding indigenous peoples, human rights, and transparency. Rebecca,
1: welcome. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here, and particularly um, knowing your audience and being excited about the opportunity to have a conversation.
0: This is a topic that I think so many of us are in need of enriching, not to play on words economy and enriching, but I think certainly at a personal level that I would like to know more. Let's start, if you would bear with us, with a really basic concept. Rebecca, when we talk about indigenous, what are we talking about? Would you help us with a definition there? Well,
1: not to confuse this right off, um, but I, I actually really start with saying we are all indigenous, Elena, because we are not going to get into some kind of vehicle and leave the planet and Mother Earth. So we are so tied and connected to the planet, and to each other that I, I really do believe we are all indigenous peoples. However, there is a legal regime, and there's a body of international law that has emerged from a uh, decades-long struggle of indigenous peoples. So there is a, an indigenous peoples movement that is distinct, and these are the people that have been tied to the land for the entire existence of their societies and cultures. The definition that the United Nations or the International Labor Organization uses is really one that says you self-identify if you're an indigenous person. You claim being indigenous, but you also have to have a history among your people and group that predates any other Uh, existence of another group coming in. You see lots of travel around the world. But indigenous people basically can say, we were here first, is the second criteria. And the third criteria really is the one that I alluded to in that it is about a spiritual and cultural tie to the land. I believe this last piece is among and within all of us, actually. And I think we need to come back to that connection to Mother Earth. And I think indigenous peoples hold many, many brilliant solutions and brilliant ways of organizing their societies so that they really are in balance. But the criteria that the world is looking at is uh, self-identification, uh, predating any other group in that geography, and in this tie to the land. And that's how indigenous people are defined. When you say that there's a link
0: to the land. How do you define that? Is that a geographic link? Is that a, there's been a community established in this area for a long time? How do you go about doing that? It must be
1: fairly complex. Excellent question because this is something in a relationship don't forget, that has lasted for 10 to 20 to 30 and in some places 40,000 years. So what we're seeing in the cultural expression are many ceremonies are very, very specific about stewarding Mother Earth. For instance, if you go to Australia and you're visiting with the Aboriginal women in Australia, many of the groups have what they call women's business. And women will go out and they'll perform a dance that is specifically about tapping their life-giving powers back into Mother Earth. So she may have life-giving powers, and they feel this is a reciprocal relationship. So Mother Earth gives them powers to to, uh, bear life, and they're tapping their uh, their life-giving powers back into Mother Earth. Uh, In a more practical way, and moving from metaphysical into day-to-day, we've worked in climate change, and we're finding that um, the traditional ecological knowledge in our communities is profound. For example there's uh, what the uh, technicians are calling biomimicry, but what I knew as a kid was watching nature and having nature tell you what's going to happen. Well, we know groups that look at where birds plant uh, build their nests, and the higher up or the lower location of the nest determines what the rainfall is going to be in that uh, given year. So we're finding incredible pieces of information, and we're starting to work with companies so that when a corporation comes into the territories, they can be least disruptive to the ecosystem by listening and and using uh, this traditional ecological knowledge. For example, in the Arctic, uh, one of the oil companies up there, all their uh, big sea vessels had been painted bright orange and red for visibility, and yet the uh, Inuit elders had informed them that uh, red and orange disturbs sea mammal life, so they've changed all the paint colors to blue on their ships. And the uh, captains, the sea captains, have reported it is uh, easier traveling. So we're finding a a wealth of traditional ecological knowledge that's going back its empirical data about that specific ecosystem, but put together uh, its knowledge of the entire planet. And to give you a sense, mean, of the scope, indigenous people today are five percent of the world's population. So we're about four hundred million people in the world as indigenous peoples. And our lands uh combined are twenty four percent of the earth's surface with eighty percent of the remaining biodiversity. Eighty percent. So the rest of the planet, the eighty percent of the planet where everybody else is living has less than twenty has about twenty percent of the biodiversity. And would you you repeat those Sure. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a staggering statistic, but when people say, can, it, can indigenous people you know, take care of the planet? Are they good stewards? Do they understand conservation? I come back and say, "We, our territories span up to 24% of the earth's surface, land surface, and on that 24%, and it, it's debatable, it could be 23%, but it's right in that range, um, 80% of the world's Remaining biodiversity—that's your plant life, your life, your animal life—is um, on indigenous territories. This statistic can be cited from World Resource Institute, Rights and Responsibilities, World Bank. Um, the aggregate statistics are uh, amazing. They're—they're they're awesome. I guess
0: this is the word for it. And this is the time when the word awesome truly applies,
1: right? It—it it does, and I. We are trying to work with uh, conservationists now in, in an equal partnership because one of the things that's been proven is when they go out and create the parks or the protected areas, sometimes they're targeting our territory and we get evicted. Conservation quality has actually gone down when indigenous people get removed from their lands. So we're really looking now at conservation as you know, wanting us to be equal partners, and we're insisting that we have a role in co-management when protected areas are created. And like I said, most of them are on our territories anyway. So we're coming to terms with uh, building strong alliances, in, and we have, to, we have to be strong in ourselves because uh, the old way of conservation is still there. The, it's seen as easier to create a park than it, than, uh, it is necessarily to, to negotiate with an indigenous group. But companies are showing they can do it, and so conservationists are following. And we hope to see the day when your listeners can hear about indigenous territories around the world and be very familiar with us really managing and being in business as equal partners, too. There's
0: there's two things that that jump out at me in that last sentence that you shared. The first one is when we talk about indigenous peoples – is this 5% or 400 million people that you just shared with us a minute ago, which is huge, that's more than the population of the United States today, which is at 312 million in 2013. Is this a an organized... I'm, I'm not sure how to describe it. Is this a grouping of people that are collaborating, that are aware of each other? Are these separate groups? How would you describe this... Five percent, four hundred million indigenous peoples.
1: Well, we are—we all operate under the same international legal regime that sets forth indigenous peoples' rights. The United Nations and the International Labor Organization and and these global entities have created a policy and a legal framework to recognize indigenous peoples. Having said that, we do come together. In fact, once a year, we come together to the uh, United Nations in New York City, and it's going to be May. Every year it's May. This May, for 2013, it will be May 18th, um, and it runs for about uh, a week and a half, starting on the 18th and people are encouraged to come up if they want to see. There's 3,000 or more individual indigenous peoples coming from hundreds of different indigenous groups dressed in our traditional outfits and uh, clothing. We come together. We have a grand opening at the United Nations, and then we spend the next week and a half working on um, policies and making recommendations for countries where we come from and for the, uh, the world and the alliance of countries in general as to how indigenous peoples want to go forward. Uh, it's, it's every May. Last year, we had it's, it was May in 2012. Uh, this is 2013. Uh, it can, it's pretty standard, and I recommend any listener that's going to New York City to try to time it so they can come and see this event. It's truly spectacular. Uh, but we really do hard business there, and we're going to be having sessions this year working directly with corporations. Uh, they're trying to really look at... The, the legal framework I keep referring to, I mean, it carries an incredible piece uh, of rights within it. Indigenous people's rights include what's called free prior informed consent. And when you asked if we were these isolated groups, there's clearly groups that don't know each other, and we still have indigenous groups that want to remain uncontacted, which means they do not want to meet anyone else, and they want to live undisturbed in extremely remote, Areas of their territory. But even those groups get re- represented at these global forums because, for the past uh, 30 years, the struggle has been to come and get this legislative body to recognize our rights. And what was happening was many corporations, many conservation groups, just outsiders in general, even the governments in the countries where we live, would come into our territories and make decisions. I personally was part of a decision this government made to have boarding schools, Bureau of Ending Affair boarding schools, where they would come in and take the kids from home and put them in these far away boarding schools for education. Sometimes they were run by um, the, a religious group and sometimes they were run by governments, but they were never very good schools. Uh, they had tremendous uh, homesickness, but they also didn't have very good nutrition. They had very uh, corporal punishment uh and were being denied speaking the language. So while those rights now are in place saying that any school system has to contain the language of the child, you can't abuse the child, the school should be placed at all possible close to the child's home, they're not just U.S. rights anymore either. We struggle long and hard in the United States, and in 1975, got legislation that was called self-determination, which meant we had a right to make decisions about our future and about our children's future. Self-determination has become the rallying call for indigenous peoples around the world. And I go back to this free prior informed consent, because what it says is no one can come into our territories anymore and do whatever they want. They need to come in. They need to meet with us. We need to have conversations about what it is they want uh, and why they want to be there. And then we work together to come up with mutual benefits. There may be cases where the, a company's coming in and, and it's just not going to be beneficial to the group, and they'll say no. There may be many cases where companies will come in and the group will find extra benefits that the company hadn't even thought of. Um, but that free prior informed consent is the law that says, We have the right to decide. And what we're seeing happen globally is this is becoming a right that all communities want. Whether they're indigenous or not, we're seeing communities say, enough, we want to have a say in what you put in our neighborhood or what you do to my backyard. And most of those rights really originated in what has been the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Movement. A part of that sentence that
0: you said earlier, that I said there were two things that caught my attention. The second part that caught my attention was you said that you are focused on making an impact and economics. And of course what we're talking about today is the value of indigenous economics. And when we look at the size, not just the size of these peoples, but the Importance because if 23% in 80% of biodiversity means that you are stewards of some of the most important land in the planet, perhaps control of the future survival from a, just from a sheer health of the planet perspective, what can you tell us about the economic importance and the
1: economics of the indigenous peoples? Well, first I want to take a moment and recognize what you just said, because this is the situation today. Indigenous people are the stewards of 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. So if we care about the planet, and if we care about All of our futures collectively, we have to start being more aware about indigenous people and look at ways that they can be supported. Because right now, they're doing the majority of the heavy work that this planet needs to move forward into the centuries and centuries of more flourishing, prosperous human life. Um, And it's indigenous peoples that have actually built economic models that work within balance and harmony of the planet. And I will talk to economists, and I am economist by training, and I have to say I'm probably considered out of the box (laughs) economist by thinking, Um, but we have to come to a place where we bring what has been called economic intangibles back into the system. For an easy example, right now companies are not necessarily factoring in the costs of pollution, and that is and should be a cost of their doing business. So we're looking at ways within an indigenous economy that those costs have never been separate. And to, to again, have to go a little bit into sort of the metaphysical, you need to understand how indigenous people see the world as a whole. So because we're all connected, because every living thing is considered equal and sacred, you really then begin to look at designing your economic or your political or your social systems within that worldview. So we have to come to a point to realize that balance and harmony are not romantic notions. They're fundamental millennia-old design principles. When we look at the economy, an indigenous economy is created out of a sense of prosperity of creation. There's a belief that there's abundance in Mother Nature, Versus what we have in today's Western economic system is scarcity of resources, that there's a belief that we're going to run out. It also creates a fear. Uh, And if you want to hold that, let's look at at, uh, energy for a minute. You're going to say, well, we're going to run out of fossil fuel. That may be true, but then what about wind? What about solar? Then we go back to the indigenous view of prosperity of creation, that there is an abundance in creation, not a scarcity in creation. And they also then begin to believe in... The kinship where many greetings are like all my relatives. Many time when you say hello, many times when you say goodbye, your greeting in whatever the native language is is one that says all my relatives because you're recognizing the relations that you have with all living things. Well when you have that sense of relationship, uh, you also look at an e- economy that is about sharing and distribution. Um, because you believe that you are related and responsible for each other, and so when you, we have um, looked at maps before actually, where we're mapping like a whale hunt up in the Arctic, and how many places does the whale meat go, and how many people get given portions of whale meat according to custom. It's a very ritualized distribution, and when you're done mapping that, you actually literally cannot count. But I. With a rough estimate, it goes to about 700 different places in one small Inuit village in the Arctic. We then mapped cash going in to that same village, and it went to five places, five places, the points of one hand. So creating this wealth that comes in in a way that's cash-based creates have and have-nots. When, if you look at the whale, it had been considered wealth in a traditional society because it's what you eat and it's, uh, it's uh, comparable to wealth in. And the wealth goal was to be distributed as widely as possible, not to accumulate. We did uh, research looking at the differences between this distribution uh, intent within the Western society and within an indigenous society. And today we have... 300, or we have three, actually, three multi-billionaires in today's world who own collectively more wealth and assets than 50 of the smaller developing countries in the world. Uh, 1% of today's population own 40% of the world's assets. This distribution is so out of balance. Uh, and I'm not talking... Um, Some kind of socialism. I'm talking about plain, simple principles of balance uh, and in distribution. We will absolutely self-fulfill the prophecy within this economic system of scarcity of resources if we believe we're a bunch of individuals, not related to each other, but individuals with insatiable appetites, consuming, consuming. Consuming is a word for cannibalism. You consume and destroy and wipe out. Uh, and if we believe we have insatiable consumption appetites, uh, we will reach in, uh, a predictable scarcity of resources. There's there's a lot by way of design principles that are in how indigenous societies organize. And I think you put your finger on probably the key one for today and what we all face is the economic one. But let me give another example on a social one. I come from a matrilineal society. My mother was from the deer clan uh, within the uh, eastern Cherokee nation. And we were always taught that women were leaders. that was assumed There was leadership by the mere fact you were born a woman. Uh, And so the society was actually organized to take advantage of this. And we had a uh, red council, which was the men's council, which ruled during times of war. And we had the white council, which was the women's council, which ruled during times of peace. And we were at peace more often than we were at war. And in addition, the women really selected the men that served on the red council. But the idea between the white and red council was to take the strengths of both and bring those strong, important decision-making roles together, so that they could make the best decisions for the whole. Um, and and it was, a, again, design it was a political design principle around balance, and we see these principles of balance and harmony throughout the social, economic, and political organizing of indigenous societies. You can see them in today's societies, too, but you see them uh, struggling under tremendous weights of institutions we've created that no longer work for the best of humanity. I think our, many of our institutions are outdated, and our economics really needs to be rethought at this point. Um, we hope to see uh, companies growing more and more around what's called a social license to operate. And in some ways, it it would be a mirror to the indigenous economy because it's about giving back. It's about making sure you don't just extract everything of worth um, and leave that particular uh, place empty. It's a place-based accountability. When you take something. You must give something back. And we're hoping that corporations will really evolve. Uh, We're seeing the social investment community ask key questions around social license to operate, environmental license to operate. Companies themselves are growing much more aware of how they need to conduct themselves in community, in ecosystems. I think they have advanced more environmentally uh, because it's easier for them to measure in some ways. And, and, you know, they can always fall back and say the social uh, measurements are, are fuzzy, warm and fuzzy. But we all know when a community feels safe. We all know when when kids are thriving, when kids have enough to eat, kids do better in school. And we all know we can have better schools, too. We know a good school from a bad school. So these things are measurable. And I think we have to come back as a society and actually learn from indigenous peoples, Uh, how you can organize our institutions and our economy so that it's really about the collective good of all. One of the
0: thoughts that comes to mind when we are discussing indigenous peoples and their land is the belief that many people have had for I don't know how long, throughout history, that some of these people are like children and that they are not capable of looking out for themselves and that if left to their own devices, they will be conquered by others or they won't survive or very simply that they're too primitive and they need to be made wiser, that they need to be converted to other religions and so on and so forth. What would you say
1: in response to those arguments? I think we all have a lot to learn from each other. And let me start with a story. We're working with the San people over in southern Africa, in the, uh, Botswana, Namibia, South Africa region. And the San are more uh, popularly known as the Bushmen. They've been recognized by all Western science as having carried the DNA for humanity as we know it today. So in some ways these are our this is as as hu- the human being goes this is our mother and father. This is where all human beings as we know today have have come. And the Africa countries are wanting to remove them from their traditional territories to make way for uh large agribusiness to make way for ecotourism, uh to make way for any of the mineral minings that um, that they are uh, currently uh, afforded. So we've been out there visiting with them and uh, they were going to be evicted and I had talked to them about let's let's meet with the government and see if we can work this out and we can even meet with the mines and they probably won't they're probably not the ones that want you evicted anyway and, and but we need to start talking. Well, we're sitting by a big campfire and I, they, they broke into uh, one of their oldest ceremonies out of appreciation for the fact that we were going to stay and try to help them. And I would close my eyes and I would hear the snap of branches or the crack of, of twigs and I would hear the grasses rustling and then I would hear like, I don't know if you ever heard, like when a bird takes off, the way the wind sounds underneath their wings. And I'd open my eyes, and I wouldn't be anything around, and I'd close my eyes again, just kind of sitting there. And I swore I thought I heard maybe a lion coming up through the grasses, the way it was slithering, and the noises were. And I opened my eyes again. Finally, it dawned on me that what I was hearing was this Bushman talk. When they spoke, their language was a direct imitation of the sounds of nature. Here were people that were so closely tied to Mother Earth that their very language were sounds that you heard when you went outside. What these people know, we may never, ever find out. And yet, I would rather know that than how to run my email. I would rather know that and how to handle my microwave. There is knowledge among these people that could really direct how we go forward in the future. We're still in battle with Botswana, trying to secure their traditional lands, trying to keep their livelihood, and trying to keep them there, connected with everything they know and everything that is their essence. We've seen groups, the pygmy up in the Congo Basin, sitting out destitute in, in, in nowhere just sitting out. And when you come in there, basically they were evicted from their impenetrable forest by World Wildlife Foundation and the uh, Democratic Congo Republic to create parks. And when you go there, though, you see such a bright, bright, happy, just glimmer in their eyes and their smiles. And, and it's because they really see the world in terms, I go back to abundance. They don't see scarcity of resources. And these people are starving and they've been evicted. And their answer to what's happened is they feel they have betrayed their gods because they're required and obligated and responsible for taking care of the forests. And they no longer can do that. So their belief is they are now suffering because they have not met. Their spiritual duty in stewarding the forests. There's no resentment. There's no anger. There's no rage. There's just a complete um, concern that they are not filling, filling up, fulfilling their obligations. There's a, there's an issue about technology, and technology is important, and it's changed our lives, but there's an issue of wisdom and a much deeper, more profound, universal knowledge. And I think this is the bridges we need to build. When we work in a community, we bring in Western science, wildlife inventory. We look at good camp stoves. We're bringing in solar in some cases, laptops in others, but not at the expense and the cost of losing that cultural heritage and that's kind of what the difference is i think that we we know we actually scientifically know that biodiversity is crucial we know in agricultural businesses you monocrop i mean the whole irish potato famine has taught us that only growing one kind of crop is not good it's high high risk we're starting to look at this element of risk and taking the element and, and indigenous people perceive that risk and we're brilliant farmers or hunters and gatherers and stewards of their ecosystem by deliberately creating niches for diversity. Uh, in, in, well, here in uh, Latin America, the indigenous peoples cultivated over 3,000 kinds of potatoes, all suited for the exact kind of rainfall and the exact amount of sunshine, and there's a particular kind of soil on that Spot. And then you go up eight feet to a different terrace and you have different soil, different spot, different sun, different rain, and that potato is different. So the understanding that altogether there will be always be potatoes no matter what famine hits is one that is fundamental within indigenous understanding of how you operate. And, and our societies are getting much more... Um, well, I, I see progress and I also see, uh, <laughs> I also see trouble. Uh, I guess maybe it depends on the day you talk with me, but I, I do see corporations and I see communities uh, really wrestling with these bigger issues, whereas uh, 20 years ago they weren't even on the table for conversation. I'm personally an organic farmer, but I've seen more and more corporations really pay attention when they come in as to what they are doing with the soil. And I've seen them meet with uh, elders and talk about how to do the, um, uh, I think they call it remediation when they bring the soil back uh, and when they bring the the ecosystem back. I think uh, these are values. And you started the question with sort of the values uh, within economics and that might be the rule. It might be this incredible wisdom and this way of bringing uh, principles into the organization of the economy, where we all can see our values flourish. Because I believe that by and large, most people hold the same values. Uh, indigenous people aren't unique. We're very. Uh, similar. We will care for what happens to our children. We want better futures for our children. We want safe communities. We want clean water. We want clean air. These are things we all want. Um, and together, I think we can move the earth that way. But I do think indigenous people deserve a lot of credit and recognition uh, for being leaders in, in, in where we need to go. One of the issues, as I understand it, um-
0: You're going to be a lot more knowledgeable about this, so perhaps you can help us understand. One of the issues, from my understanding of the Khoikhoi, the San people, that has caused many problems since that region of the world was, let's say, developed by other cultures that arrived after the San, was that they did not recognize... They did not understand and they did not accept the concept of private property. To them, everything belonged to everyone, and it was available for collective use. And so they considered that cattle, wherever it was, behind a fence or not, was available to whoever needed it, and water and crops and so forth. And that created a lot of tension with the local farmers and the cattlemen and so forth and was one of the reasons that they were hunted for sport to near annihilation how do you get these concepts into a place of as you said earlier balance and harmony because even today these are issues from what I understand of the Koi koi, the sand culture that they do not embrace
1: I think we are at a crossroads, uh, and I think we have to learn as a global uh, society, we have to learn uh, to embrace diversity of the different cultures within the global society. But I'd like to go back to one of the things that has been really groundbreaking in economic um, theory lately and I'm drawing a blank on her name, but she was the, this is the, totally embarrassing because she's been the only woman to get the uh, Nobel Economic Prize. But what she got it on was her research into proof of the commons and looking at the fact that for most of uh, Western uh, economics, the belief has been it's only through individual progress and individual competition that we can move the economy forward and that therefore you needed the individual property rights that you brought up. Uh, that is one view and one system. What her breakthrough was uh, was that actually the commons, it could be a forest or it could be water, body of water or whatever you want to make the commons or the collective owned is actually better taken care of and better stewarded uh, than individual ownership. And up until her work, it had always been viewed that it was only through individual property ownership that we actually could take care of property. People only would take care of their house if they owned it kind of thinking. But what they were finding was that this collective ownership has tremendous economic value because it does carry all the same kind of stewardship uh, and and prudent production uh, that the Western mode and actually carried better. So we're looking at uh, private property ownership or public property ownership, and what we're seeing is that we need both. We actually need both. We don't need a system that carries individual private ownership to the point where none of the rest of us are going to be able to survive. Because the model you're referring to needs to be backed up against one fact today, and I've already said that, is 1% of the world's population own 40% of the world's assets. We can't continue to have that kind of individual property ownership Accumulate at the rate that globalization has brought us and expect 90% of us to still survive. It's impossible. So we're going to have to begin to rethink how we develop and run and maintain an economy whose sole purpose is about the benefit and meeting the needs of all. Not a few, but now, all.
0: Now, that makes me think of when when you talk about the benefit of all and few one of the things that just popped into my head was the Serengeti Highway issues in Tanzania and the Amazon deforestation now these are territories that are in the hand of indigenous peoples The Tanzania is Self-ruling by indigenous people, I believe. Likewise, the um, Amazon.
1: Actually, no. It's this is where it gets tricky in okay. Africa. But let's make your point because this is it's a technical definition. There's, Tanzania isn't isn't necessarily run by indigenous people. Uh, it's run by a tri- tribal people, but not indigenous. But but I want I want your point first. It sounds more important, and that was more of a technicality.
0: Okay, oh, that's that's <laughs> uh, very interesting, and it, of course, it's hard to know. Who's running what? But th- the concept has been very controversial lately because, of course, people have been saying that these lands have been mismanaged and that the damage, if there were to be a highway built in order to extract valuable minerals from a remote area of the country in Tanzania, I think it was China that was funding that, I'm not certain. And likewise, in the Amazon, the deforestation, that these economically fueled dramatic changes in our environment were being driven by private concerns but were being approved by indigenous people and on the other hand there are people who say that many of the people who own certainly the land in the Amazon are giving up their rights because they need health care for their tribe or for their family so of course the, the concepts are complex but how do we deal with these these issues they're not easy the lines are not clear and now that such a high percentage of the world's biodiverse lands are in the hands of indigenous peoples. Other peoples who have had their chance, as it were, are passing judgment and not... Uh, let, it, let me stop there.
1: Yeah, uh, it is really complex, and let me start with the, the last point you made and try to go back up, because it was rich with wonderful comments, uh, and, but the starting point was, I, I received a call from uh, a, a number of environmental groups, this is going back about 10 years, when the uh, Quinault tribe had decided they were going to start their whale hunting again, and this was subsistence whale hunting, and it was for ceremony, ceremonial purposes only, but the commercial whaling had basically really decimated the uh, whale population, and the uh, environmentalists were wanting a uh, ban totally on, on whales, but the traditional Hunting was legal, so the tribe had decided to start it. I had probably six phone calls from environmental groups and conservation groups asking me if I would set up a phone call or if I could talk to the tribe to talk them out of it or to set up a phone call where they could. And my comment was uh, that things changed. It's not that the tribe needed to kill the whale necessarily to fulfill their culture, but they did have to have a relationship with the whale, and so would these groups be willing to put in $5 million apiece and, and have the tribe have a $25 million whaling research center so their relationship with the whale could move into being experts because they already knew a lot about the whale, and so they could uh, have become world experts on, with this research whaling center and move into that arena. Not one of those groups wanted to actually pay the indigenous tribe to give up the whaling hunt so that they could move into a different kind of relationship. Now, they didn't kill all the whales. The the non-indigenous commercial whalers killed the whales. And yet they were the ones basically taking the brunt and the blame for it. And that's what I talk about. There has to be some kind of reciprocity. You can't just have the, all this extraction taking place and nothing goes back in. Whether it's indigenous or not, you just can't keep a system that operates that way. And we have you know, a development system that's gone haywire. Uh, and And we might be the miner's canary in it which, like in the coal mines, the canary dies and then the miners die too. Uh, and that might be the indigenous people's position right now, but it it's clearly then the whole world is in trouble at this point. So getting back um, to indigenous peoples and, and how they move forward, I don't want to make case, or I hope I don't sound like I'm making the case that as an indigenous person, I'm better uh, because I'm indigenous. As an indigenous person, I am just a person and a human being like anyone else. But my society had brilliant ways of organizing socially, politically, and economically with values in it that were about the long-term sustainability of humanity. And that's not what we have nowadays. We have societies that are organized around quickest, fastest dollar extraction, exploitation we can get to. And that is not sustainable. So I'm saying, and and, and so I don't want to say, it. and yet, you know, you could, if you take individuals out of their societies and put them in a different realm, they will probably begin to operate that way. I know indigenous people that can be just as competitive, just as greedy, just as corrupt as anybody else. (laughs) And, and and it's on you know, it's it's in everybody's societies. I mean that's just human nature, but it's how society organizes itself. And right now we reward really bad behavior. And we have an economy that tries to pretend it's value neutral when its values are really accumulation, accumulation, accumulation with a good dose of competition. And you're and so you're in this system being required to work as the CEO of a company you must keep your stock price up and that might require day to day decisions that aren't good for the company that have nothing to do other than keeping the stock price up like gut your highly talented senior people because you'll have cheaper labor turn a better profit have a higher price stock um, price. Um, so That's not long-term. That's not sustainable. uh, And yet that same individual would make completely different decisions if he were allowed to run his... be a CEO in a company that had long-term markets. So we're getting at a place where uh, there's... we have to be careful and and not um, hear that it's about being uh, a better person than the other person. I mean, there's definitely ways... To conduct your life. But as a society, we've got to come to terms with how we design and organize our institutions so that what's good about humankind comes to the forefront and what's bad gets mitigated. Who decides? Who decides? I think that's where I mean, as like I talked about the story earlier, uh, let's go to political organization. Let's talk about that because what we have now, let's look at who makes the decisions today. Let's look at Congress. Who is in Congress? That's who decides in this society. What's similar about it? Is there a lot of women in it? Nope. Is there a lot of color in it? Nope. Is there a lot of wisdom in it? Nope. Is there a lot of courage in it? Nope. Is there a lot of accountability in it? No. <laughs> Unless I mean, tell me if you if you believe differently. That's fine. Um, and I would like to hear that back. But I think we have a fundamental crisis in leadership in today's society. Wouldn't you say, though, that
0: Congress really, in many ways, is run by private interests, that the lobbyists have become so powerful that they're driving our elected
1: officials' decisions? Well, that's, it's a system that we've created, and it's a system based on accumulation, uh, and again, it's, it's, it, it's, it's operating, it, it is exactly what, what you've described. You, you painted the picture perfectly. But to look, pull it back as a system then to see what's happened. Um, and it would be pretty hard to be a good politician nowadays, don't you think? I mean, if you were to go in there, imagine yourself as a congressman or a senator trying to really stand up for, for what in general, the public is wanting. They're wanting to know that they're going to have a future. They're wanting to know their kids are going to be a little better off than they were now. They're wanting to know they can afford to keep a house over their heads. I, uh, So you're looking at those situations where you will have to take on those big interests. And it, and it does, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, but it circles back to distribution. <laughs> it circles back to creating a society and an economy whose fundamental purpose is to meet the needs of everyone, not just a few. And we've created these tools in the economy that reinforce just a few. The way you calculate GDP, the gross domestic product, is really a bookkeeping system. It's a double entry. You enter what uh, your credits and you subtract your debits. Well, what you define as what's credit. And what's debit is crucial. And that's been defined already. And so we're looking at uh, what's good for the economy is building, um, manufacturing, but so are guns, so is tobacco, so is alcohol, so is war. Uh, What's considered bad for the economy or not a credit but a debit, an economic expense, is actually education health. Now, I think we could create a bookkeeping system that saw education as an investment, saw health as an investment, the same way it sees guns and alcohol as investments. <laughs> only I would argue maybe to put them on the debit side of the ledger. Uh, we have tremendous oil spills right now, and they're actually good for the economy because of the way the GDP is calculated. The gross domestic product calculation cannot take into account the damage that is done in war or in pollution. So these things are free in the balance sheet. And the cost of what you have to pay for, uh, amputating legs, uh, bringing uh, stress, post-traumatic stress syndrome people back to where they can function, all the repair that has to be done are considered good economic costs. Uh, when we privatize jails, We absolutely need more prisoners when we privatize um, hospitals. We need more sick people. That's what's good for the economy in the way that we calculate this uh, economic value now. So we have to begin to rethink, uh, and, and and not all at once. We can start in very small ways. We can start individually with how we conduct ourselves and how we behave. I try to buy locally. Like I said, I'm an organic farmer. I take care of the soil Uh, I put soil and nutrients back into the soil when I grow stuff and take the nutrients out. Uh, I go down and I buy from the local producers. Uh, We've got a guy that does the pottery. We've got a carpenter in town. We've got a welder. Um, And when I use my uh, savings and my idle money that I'm not having to spend, um, when I have a couple hundred dollars to save or something like that, I really look for socially responsible investors, people that will help me continue to put value to my money. Because you you started the question with, I think, exactly the point of today's society. We have to bring our values back into our institutions. We have to make the economy, the political system, um, and the social systems work for everyone in our society. If it's not the politicians,
0: then who can we trust to make these decisions that have tremendous economic impact that, if I'm hearing you correctly, the balance and harmony that we need as a world society have to come from more than just market-driven values. How do we go about finding this balance and this harmony that takes into account more than just making money and accumulating wealth?
1: Yeah, I, think, um, I think it's about community, Elena. I think it's about each of us. Uh, two things. One, as an individual, taking some time to reflect upon what we as an individual stand for and what we care about. And then looking at how we live our lives. like I said, I think money is a powerful tool. And it's how you spend your money, how you save your money, and how you, how you use your money. I, and, and think in terms of where those, what is the value there that is going to happen or that you're reinforcing uh, or affirming in the use of your money. Uh, but then I think this carries into the next step where, uh, those people around you, where you live, that community, uh, being a contributing factor in that community. And it's going to be through, you know, a network of communities that we begin to rebuild. But it's first the community where we make communities that they're safe. I've seen tremendous number of alternative communities cropping up across this country. The United States is—we've got the slow growth, growth people, the slow food people, uh, the slow money people. Now, <laughs> uh, people are very deliberately, consciously. Uh, Taking these positions, I think, and, and placing themselves now in, in a stand that has values and commitment uh, to both the local and, and to their, like I said, and to their particular uh, values and beliefs. Um, but the local farmers uh, in our area, but it's not just our area. We're uh, outside of Washington D.C., but I've seen it across the country where more and more small farmers are growing back up. Um, I think we, I think we are at a tipping point, I might say, in that what you've described, both with our politicians in D.C., uh, the leadership itself, I believe, is lost. The leadership we have and what's pushed itself out front, I believe there's a quiet leadership that is growing and connecting. And we have to move away from this idea that scale means big. I think we've got to go back to contemporary now. Scale could be viral. Scale could be hundreds and hundreds and thousands of us doing this in our communities that we reach a viral scale we don't need someone great big up above telling us how to behave and what to do and controlling it all I think we're building the systems now that are much more vibrant um, and I would I would hope that uh, there are systems that connect diverse communities uh, so that we can really learn from each other I, I, I don't can't predict where it's going to go I mean that Companies, uh, there's a lot of fear out there now. I work with companies, and I can see in the extractive industries, they know this isn't sustainable. Uh, New pathways are opening up, and maybe the good news is uh, it's definitely more than one right now. It's not like there's just one path, Uh, and and there'll probably be more. Who knows where we're going to go? But I would believe we're going to have solar and wind in the future, uh, we're going to uh, change. Uh, many of our institutions will probably, like, who would have believed the car industry was going to collapse in, what was it, 2009? Um, and that's going to have change now, come out of it. The industries are going to have to shift.
0: Part of the information that you shared with me in preparation for today's conversation was that your belief is that the Western market based economy that we have today is unsustainable that although it has created 500 multi-billionaires there are millions actually billions of people who are living on a pittance what suggestions would you share with our listeners that they can take back to their lives to their businesses that take into account these concepts that we've talked about, this the value of indigenous economics in more ways than just the accumulation of assets.
1: And I think um, we have, as humanity, we've come a long, long way, and we're poised right now. I think through our technology to make these connections and build the relationships that we need for how we're going to go forward. And I say that because globalization has been in many ways seen as, as a problem, but it's, but it's one of these, it's a blessing and it's a curse, in that it can move too fast and it can move quicker than uh, we can move as, as a humanity and as a body of, of human beings with our values and our cultures. Technology can shoot us off into space and across distances instantly, but that's a good thing. And I think that um, when we begin to look at the indigenous lessons, the lessons really are about the connections and the relationships and that we're we really are all related. And when we begin to move forward, globalization has uh allowed us to uh respond to disease and epidemics in a way we couldn't before. It's allowed us to begin to surface some of our issues and try to bring education uh, in, in, a, in a wider uh, <coughs> uh, availability than we've ever done before. Um, we have to use that technology, uh, use the, the uh, institutions that we have built so that we can begin to carry... Um, carry a different message, I guess. For instance, a huge, what is it, ExxonMobil, I think it's the world's largest company, um, and it's an energy company, and it's working in very remote locations. If we can begin to look at just the business model as also a distributive opportunity, where when they go into a community and they're going to extract, let's say, $12 billion of um Profit from that uh, one community, then there should be a distributive system that allows that community to have tangible benefits and be part of uh, that development. And I think if we get to where companies more and more are responsible for wherever they operate and however they're operating, that the people in those locations, whether it's a plant or whether it's an actual community, that the surrounding neighbors are better off and that there's maybe uh, equity shares if the community is working in partnership with an oil company, a gas company, or a mining company, and it's coming right out of their land, then they should have a stake in that business. They can become capital owners, too, not just labor, but capital owners, because the capital owners are the ones that really operate in this in this economy. Um so that there's ways to begin to look at the models that we already have that we've spent a lot of time in developing and adapt them so we're going to get much more out of the balance and harmony uh, that I talked about from the very beginning. The companies can operate in balance and harmony in the communities where they operate and they can operate globally when they're really bringing a service that we need. We all need energy, um, but we may be we'll get to a point where we don't need to, I don't need to leave my lights on when I'm not there anymore. I don't need to play the stereo and uh, the TV at the same time because I need to make sure that everyone does get what they need by way of use of energy. So we're going to have to come to some terms here where we may have to cut back on some of what we consume very deliberately. We have to cut back on any waste. And we have to begin to look at the whole. Thank you, Rebecca,
0: for joining us from Fredericksburg, Virginia.
1: Thank you for having us. I just enjoyed it thoroughly. Great questions. Thank you. And um, please, anytime you have, come visit our website, www.firstpeoples.org, and send us an email.
0: And to our audience, thank you for listening to Rebecca Adamson, who is president of First Peoples Worldwide, who discussed the value of indigenous economics. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.